toxicology. Imagine, if you will, uh, an explorer uh, yourself uh, and uh, perhaps uh, put yourself uh, maybe a hundred years ago. Uh, and you're exploring uh, continents uh, perhaps that aren't your own, the African continent, uh, uh, for example. Uh, you, in your course of your explorations and going from village to village, uh, you come across a village where a good percentage of the people have a uh, substantial uh, physical deformity. Uh, there's obviously questions why perhaps this village, uh, this part of the country that you're exploring or the continent you're exploring has this malformation and perhaps not others. This puts us in the, the, the frame of mind perhaps uh, uh, to be detectives of uh, human disease and especially in this case uh, for today's lecture, foodborne disease. What we're going to do today in today's lecture is talk about naturally occurring toxicants, toxicants that occur naturally in many foodstuffs uh, across the globe and how they perform in their role as etiologic agents of foodborne disease. Our learning objectives here today, what we're going to do is we're going to examine the etiology or causation of human disease as it is related to naturally occurring foodborne toxicants. We're going to try to understand the complex nature of foods in terms of their chemical makeup. Uh, we tend to think of foods in terms of their protein and carbohydrates. We've introduced that in the plant kingdom we have these secondary chemical compounds. Uh, for various reasons, these are typically the chemical compounds that cause foodborne toxicant-induced disease. We're going to explore a range of foodborne disease and what we're going to do or what you're going to do perhaps as this explorer is try to do a little bit of detective work. You've got a disease manifestation. What in the local diet is perhaps uh, causing uh, that disease manifestation? We're going to explore uh, some of the major uh, foodborne uh, diseases uh, including goiter, tropical ataxia neuropathy or TAN, uh, tropical amblyopia, lathyrism, a very famous uh, disease, and some of their linkages in terms of the chemical linkages uh, to uh, foodborne toxicants. We're going to finish off looking at a range of natural food toxicants that exist uh, out in the human diet and their direct involvement in human disease, not necessarily in the disease classification, but sometimes a grouping of diseases. Now, in terms of the complexity of food, most of us uh, understand the carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, uh, segments in terms of the nutrient value of food, the most important part of it, why we get our energies and the uh, synthetic uh, precursors to the molecules of life from our diet. Less uh, concerned, perhaps, are we uh, about the non-nutrient aspects of the food, although sometimes the non-nutrient aspects actually drive us. It's the color, the taste, uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, sometimes these secondary compounds always also are uh, intoxicating. The non-nutrient aspects of food are, we can have as food additives where we combine things either in uh, low-scale uh, sort of food preparation or very exotic or synthetic uh, food additives. These can occur as uh, uh, secondary chemicals that are natural. Uh, it can also be contaminants or processing chemicals. But in terms of the numbers, of non-nutrient chemicals that we find in different foods, give you a range, uh, these can be in the hundreds. And these are the, the, the chemicals that we've been able to identify. 
Uh, and typically, uh, it's a real challenge to find out what chemical of this entire range is actually the active ingredient, if you will, or the disease vector in terms of foodborne intoxication. Okay? This also gives you an idea as we go back to um, revisiting uh, things like food additives and even pesticide residues in food, and as well uh, environmental contaminants, that it is a challenge to decipher this complex makeup of chemicals, this consortium of chemicals to find out again the one that we are looking for. And this is the challenge of analytical toxicology. So I would imagine that you, if you were an explorer without the tools of modern analytical toxicology, your task of finding the causes of a foodborne toxication would be a particular challenge. So in a certain sense, we should all have a tremendous amount of respect for the scientists uh, and the physicians, uh, the public health officials that uh, decades ago, uh, perhaps even several hundred years ago in some cases, linked particular types of food uh, to particular disease manifestations. Now, in terms of the natural toxicants in human disease, we're going to go through several, including the classification of compounds that cause goiter or goitrogens. We talked briefly in several segments, uh, several lectures about cyanogenic glycosides. We'll talk about the causation of latherism. We've introduced in a couple of slides in various presentations in this course uh, lectins and their toxic properties, as we have also talked about various types of alkaloids. We'll repeat some of those uh, to do emphasis, but to draw attention to its physiological effects. We'll introduce uh, protease in, uh, inhibitors and vasoactive amines. We've briefly talked about vasoactive amines, but we haven't referred to them as vasoactive amines, and so we'll talk about uh, them and how they uh, change your uh, physiology. Now, goitrogens uh, is a very uh, uh, visible uh, disease manifestation. Uh, this class of chemicals contribute to the growth of goiters, and goiter uh, is a very large uh, growth on the thyroid, uh, as seen in, in this particular image. Uh, it's a fairly uh, noticeable uh, disease manifestation. Uh, goitrogens uh, come to us from compounds in the cruciferi, um, the brassica species, cabbage, uh, kale, turnips, uh, typically um, in the seeds and not much in the leaves. If you combine presentation of these foodborne chemicals with iodine deficiency, this will enhance the presentation of uh, a goiter endpoint. Now, the cruciferi uh, are the uh, class of uh, uh, um, plants that uh, actually have naturally occurring glucinolates. Uh, these are thioglucosides. Uh, they're characteristic of uh, these plants. Uh, the diets of uh, many people in many parts of the world have uh, glucosinolates in there because they have cruciferous uh, plants in their diet, whether it be the mustards and the hot spices, spices that uh, we eat uh, here in this country or in uh, the East, uh, cabbage and root vegetables in Europe and the Americas, uh, various oils like rapeseed oil, where uh, the various cultivars currently used for oils such as canola oil or Canadian uh, uh, oil is uh, a rapeseed oil where the glucosinolates have been 
um, bread out of it so it no longer is uh, what would be regarded as a toxic uh, uh, food oil. Uh, these uh, are undesirable uh, compounds because of the toxicity, uh, the bitter taste of this compound and the toxicity of the breakdown products and these breakdown products are of concern in terms of goiter development. Goitrogenic compounds or goitrins are formed from these breakdown products of glucosinolates by thioglucosidase. Uh, the metabolites are acted on include nitriles, thiocyanates, and oxazolidine. Now goitrins uh, work on the thyroid, and we know that the thyroid gland uh, actually excretes uh, uh, several uh, thyroid hormones that are uh, very active in terms of uh, hormonal balance uh, in the human body. Uh, thyroxine, triiodothyronine, and thyroglobulin are the uh, main hormones associated with the thyroid. It's controlled by the hypothalamus and the pituitary. The hypothalamus produces thyrotropin-releasing hormone, or TRH. This stimulates the pituitary to release thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH. And it's going to be helpful because of the, uh, the jargon, medical jargon, and the number of syllables in these to use the abbreviations. Now, TSH will promote the uptake of iodine and the synthesis of TH and the release of uh, TY and uh, triiodothyronine, uh, which feed back uh, to reduce the uh, TSH. The thyroid hormones also affect oxygen consumption, cardiovascular function, uh, neuromuscular activity, uh, uh, cholesterol uh, metabolism, and uh, cerebral function as well as growth and development. So this is an important thyroid system, a hormonal system, in terms of uh, growth and development of, uh, of humans. Now goitrogens uh, and goitrin and thyroidurea inhibit uh, uh, TY synthesis. And what happens is the thiocyanates and the oxazolidine and nitriles inhibit uptake of iodine by the thyroid. And so the lack of iodine causes this physical enlargement and it causes this tissue to uh, hypovascularate uh, to trap more uh, iodine. And that yields uh, this growth uh, referred to as goiter. Now in terms of testing for uh, presence of uh, goitrogens in the diet uh, and, and the presentation of the goiter disease, uh, typically, it's associated with a clinical analysis of the weight and the histology of the thyroid, uh, the growth rate uh, of the patient and the animal in terms of uh, perhaps being stunted in growth because of the importance of thyroid hormones to growth and development, as well as the iodine uh, concentration uh, in the blood and in the thyroid tissues. Uh, there is a, um, a way, a clinical measurement, diagnostic, in terms of uh, feeding uh, the individual or dosing the individual with uh, iodine compounds and measuring that uptake, and that's typically done with radioactive uh, iodine. Um, now, in terms of the presentation of um, another sort of uh, foodborne uh, disease, cyanogenic glycosides, are a category uh, that uh, 
is widespread because of the widespread consumption uh, of many plants that produce these chemical compounds. Uh, primary in this is cassava root, which is a staple uh, in, uh, in Africa uh, and in uh, South America and a little bit in Asia. Um, there are various glycosides associated with these, amidolin, uh, linamarin, durin, linamarin in the lima bean. These uh, glycosides have a toxic endpoint uh, because they can produce uh, uh, hydrogen cyanide, and cyanide will interact with oxygen transport in critical systems. Cassava root, uh, also known as the manioc or yucca, depending upon where you're at, is a woody shrub. Uh, it's a perennial. Uh, the root is actually harvested. Uh, there are many varieties out there, some more bitter than others, and the bitterness is typically associated with higher levels of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, cyanide uh, compounds. It's an annual crop, um, and various cultivars coupled with environmental conditions such as drought and food preparation will actually be significant for uh, whether or not the cardiac glycoside level is high or low. Now the topic toxic chemical in cyanogenic uh, glycosides um, is uh, hydrogen cyanide and this HCN is released when the plant is chewed or chopped up. What happens is the physical action releases a couple of enzymes, beta-glucouridase and hydroxynitrile lysase are released these act synergistically uh, to release the HCN uh, in the gut. This is a basic generic uh, chemical structure of a cyanogenic glycoside. Now, in terms of uh, food preparation, uh, uh, communities and cultures that use cassava root uh, know that there uh, needs to be certain types of preparation uh, to remove uh, the uh, toxicants. Uh, what happens in terms of preparation is that uh, uh, especially the larger roots need to be um, uh, soaked in, in water, uh, chopped in water for a period of time. Uh, this uh, uh, hydrolyzes uh, some of the HCN and releases it. Um, the cassava flour um, is sometimes uh, ground and then treated in water uh, prior to use. Um, the intestinal bacteria are what the uh, active agents in terms of residual cyanogenic glycosides that might be in there converting it to HCN, even if the enzymes have been uh, deactivated by uh, soaking in water. Another uh, vector for cyanogenic glycosides in the diet uh, is uh, uh, laetrile. Uh, this is actually used as a drug. It's an anti-cancer compound of uh, only marginal uh, repute. It's not approved in the U.S. Uh, it's uh, extracted from apricot pits, and there have been instances of several deaths associated with uh, this compound. Now, in terms of the mechanism of acute cyanide poisoning, uh, what happens is it shuts down cellular respiration and therefore energy metabolism in mitochondria. It does this by binding ferric iron. Uh, the binding capacity of cyanide or cyanates to uh, iron is uh, substantial, and it can't then be used for transport of oxygen, so it's a competitive inhibition. 
Uh, it binds iron on the cytochrome oxidase in the Krebs cycle. The minimum lethal dose is about 0.5 to 3.5 milligrams of HCN per kilogram of body weight. Now, the symptoms of acute cyanide poisoning uh, are muscular paralysis, mental confusion, respiratory distress. Uh, it typically uh, presents with rapid onset. The treatment, uh, interestingly enough, uh, if we recall our conversations about nitrate, nitrite toxicosis, where nitrate um, and actually reduction to, to nitrite actually is an oxidizing agent that uh, oxidizes ferrous iron to ferric iron. Uh, in fact, in acute cyanide poisoning, the antidote, if you will, the treatment is uh, perhaps another toxicant. We use nitrite to convert hemoglobin uh, with ferrous iron to methemoglobin, uh, ferric iron. And what this uh, particular uh, chemical reaction does is it uh, releases uh, the cyanide from the cytochrome oxidase. Uh, what you can do then in terms of follow-up therapies, if thiosulfate is around, uh, thiosulfate will bind with cyanide to form uh, a less, uh, a more innocuous uh, chemical called thiocyanate that is non-reactive in terms of um, uh, cytochrome oxidase in the irons. Now, in terms of chronic cyanide poisoning, this is quite a bit different. Uh, this occurs in areas of cassava in the diet, and so this is long-term exposure, chronic exposure. It's not particularly well understood and may be more complex than cyanogenic glycosides. There are two disorders associated with uh, chronic cyanide poisoning uh, from cassava. This is tropical ataxia neuropathy and tropical amblyopia. Now, TAN, or its, its common name, Konzo, occurs in many uh, tropical areas. It's most prevalent in West Africa. It's an atrophy of the optic nerve, ataxia, or inability to walk, and uh, mental disorders are some of the clinical signs associated with Konzo. Uh, there's a high prevalence of goiter in these individuals. Uh, what we find in terms of uh, clinical observations is that there are low levels of sulfur-containing amino acids in the individuals affected with this particular disease, and there's elevated plasma thiocyanate, which is a goitrogen. Now, in terms of some of the dietary modifiers that may impact chronic cyanide poisoning, uh, we find that if there is adequate iodine in the diet, there, there is no goiter. And by the way, most of you that uh, buy salt notice that uh, commercially it's sold as iodized, iodized salt. Uh, this iodization, this food additive, if you will, of common table salt is uh, closely related to the need to put iodine into diets uh, that are deficient in that particular uh, mineral. Uh, malnutrition in terms of uh, cyanide, uh, chronic cyanide poisoning uh, impact. Uh, malnutrition increases the neurological effects. Um, protein deficient diets also uh, modify it in terms of lack of these particular sulfur containing amino acids. And these help convert cyanide to thiocyanate in terms of the chemical reactivities. Now, the second uh, category of disease is tropical amblyopia. 
This is an atrophy of the optic nerve. It yields blurred vision and ultimately blindness. Africa and South America, uh, where cassava is a significant staple in the diet, are the primary geographical locations for this particular disease. Uh, it is reproducible in lab animals. The next uh, category of disease that we're going to talk about in terms of linking uh, a particular foodstuff or foodborne toxicant to disease is latherism. Latherism results from the consumption of certain types of peas, especially Lathyrus sativus. These are referred to in, in, uh, by common names as uh, grass peas or blue sweet peas. Uh, they're uh, primarily restricted to various uh, areas where this is a, a part of the diet in Asia and Africa. This is a very well-known uh, neurodegenerative disease. It results from the presence of two compounds in uh, these uh, uh, peas. Uh, there's an enzyme inhibitor. Uh, we'll refer to it as BAPN. I'll show you the structure here momentarily. And also a neurotoxic amino acid, ODAP. Um, and again, we'll show you that here in a moment. Uh, this is a popular food plant, uh, not only for um, uh, human consumption, but for food animal consumption because it's a hardy plant and very drought resistant. Uh, because of the prevalence and the history of latherism, uh, new cultivars of related plants uh, are uh, being developed to minimize the uh, amounts of these particular chemical compounds, these naturally occurring toxicants in these feedstuffs. Now, latherism has two forms of this particular uh, disease. Osteolatherism, which occurs mostly in animals, and neurolatherism, uh, which presents in humans. Now, in osteolatherism, we find bone deformations, uh, a characteristic weakness in arterial walls and connective tissues. Uh, this is typically, in terms of dose-response studies, been associated with uh, the chemical BAPN or beta-L-glutamyl aminopropionitrile. Uh, and this is shown structurally uh, down in the bottom here. This, again, is a component of these peas. Osteolatherism, in terms of the mechanism, BAPN will inhibit lysyl oxidase enzymes. And this particular enzyme is needed to help cross-link collagen. Collagen is a structural component, uh, and this uh, helps us in terms of uh, tissues and strength. It's a main component of uh, various uh, connective tissues and bones, and that's why you get the, uh, the disabilities associated with the structural disabilities. Neurolatherism uh, is what presents uh, most commonly in humans. Uh, again, this comes from the chronic consumption of the sativus variety. It presents with a paralysis of the legs, followed by general weakness and muscular rigidity. Uh, some refer to it as a young man disease, and this may be because of the relative dietary loading in terms of body size uh, to uh, and during the developmental cycle of individuals. Uh, there appears to be a sudden onset of the disease uh, that uh, starts with calf muscle spasms. Uh, there has not been an adequate animal model developed for neurolatherism. In terms of its presentation in humans, it's been associated with ODAP or oxal-alpha-diaminopropionic acid, ODAP. I give you the structure here on this particular slide. In terms of neurolatherism in, in, in uh, humans, the etiologic agent uh, may be OPAP. Um, uh, 
It's uh, found with uh, this particular uh, species of peas. Uh, OPAP interferes, interferes with um, normal function of the nerve synapse. Uh, it inhibits uptake of glutamic acid. Uh, there is no animal model uh, in terms of uh, a true understanding of this particular disease. Another sort of uh, uh, presentation of uh, disease is from uh, neurotoxic cholinesterase inhibitors. In our target organ toxicology and in several case studies that we've presented, we've talked about various types of cholinesterase inhibitors, especially those that present in the human diet. They're found in a variety of plants, uh, including the alkaloids in potato and tomato plants and eggplants as well. We find it uh, originally in terms of the prototypical cholinesterase inhibitor, inhibitor in the West African calabar bean that we talked about in one of our case studies because we talked about the uh, physostigmine uh, drug that has been used as a cholinesterase inhibitor when we have uh, a patient that has been exposed to cholinergic uh, type uh, toxicants. This particular phytochemical is a natural carbamate. Remember that carbamates are a class of cholinesterase inhibiting pesticides. And so in a certain sense here, this is a natural carbamate, therefore a natural insecticide that uh, is present in a foodstuff. In terms of other cholinesterase inhibitors in the human diet, uh, from the uh, solani, we have the solanine, uh, which is the most studied. This comes to us uh, in potatoes. I have a structural representation of that molecule on this slide. Uh, in the uh, earliest parts of this century and the previous century, uh, potatoes uh, in many cultures, uh, Western cultures especially, were considered to be toxic because the cultivars at that time had relatively high levels of solanine and it did present in terms of the normal uh, presentation of cholinesterase inhibition and uh, uh, just generalized illness, uh, headaches uh, associated with the alkaloid levels. Now the glycoalkaloids in potatoes uh, run from 20 to 100 parts per million wet weight. Uh, FDA has an upper tolerance of 200 uh, parts per million. Uh, we recall uh, in terms of our discussion here, in terms of uh, the breeding uh, by traditional breeding of a potato variety called Lenape that was actually presented for approval as a chipping variety potato to USDA until it was discovered that it had significant amounts of solanine alkaloid greater than 300 parts per million Therefore, this particular variety was drawn, withdrawn from the uh, marketplace. The greatest concentration of potato alkaloids, uh, and solanine is one of them, uh, is uh, in the peel and around the, splats, the sprouts. Uh, what mom told you about uh, greening is in fact uh, true and about sprouted potatoes, that they have enhanced uh, amounts of these alkaloids. Uh, uh, is it going to uh, harm you significantly? Probably not. Uh, might give you a tummy ache or a headache, uh, possibly so, depending upon your particular sensitivity. The solanine levels are uh, increased with uh, uh, some light, and so that's why you store potatoes in a dark space. Uh, if you take a russet Burbank potato uh, and put it in the light for five days, you stimulate uh, 
remembering that a potato is a living organism, uh, that uh, it responds to that light and starts its uh, production. Uh, the solanine levels start rising 250 to 700 parts per million in five days. Uh, so the toxicity marker that we have is, uh, is uh, greening uh, in terms of uh, potential for solanine. What we find in terms of uh, solanine uh, in human foods, uh, it does have uh, documented human toxicity and death. Uh, potato sprouts have high concentration. Sprouted potatoes uh, and green potatoes all have uh, higher levels uh, than recommended. The presentation of disease includes gastric pain, nausea, vomiting, hyperesthesia, increased and accelerated respiration. Uh, there have been uh, there were about two uh, of six uh, deaths in terms of uh, uh, people that get exposed to high concentrations uh, in potatoes. Now, in terms of a case study, uh, this was a case with uh, potatoes that had 420 part per million total alkaloid content. Uh, about 50% of the alkaloid in these potatoes was uh, solanine. Uh, in this case, it was 200 of the 420 parts per million. Uh, with that, that calculation, uh, you'd only need to, to consume one kilogram or 2.2 pounds of potato for toxicity only due to solanine. Um, this may also act synergistically with other uh, glycoalkaloids or additively uh, with other glycoalkaloids like uh, chaconine. The animal LD50 for solanine is 500 to 1,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So it's, it's going to be hard to get uh, an, uh, a significant uh, LD50 type uh, uh, dose in terms of humans from consumption. Uh, but probably enough to make you quite ill. Our next category of uh, naturally occurring toxicants uh, that we are concerned with in human disease are vasoactive amines. Uh, we've talked about a few of these in the course so far. What we find uh, these compounds uh, are the highest in aged cheese, uh, beer, and wine, and they are responsible for some people's intolerance or food intolerance associated with these particular food groups. There are lower levels, but they're still present in some foods such as banana, tomato, avocado, spinach, and oranges. We find them in spoiled meat. If you remember our food allergy discussions and uh, the presentation of scromboids and scromboid toxins for the disease manifestation called scromboid toxicosis, these are vasoactive amines, uh, primarily histamine. These uh, amines associated with vasoactive amines are sometimes also referred to as pressor amines because uh, they do uh, impact, uh, 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 cause vasoconstriction and uh, hypertension or increased blood pressure. Uh, they're also called catecholamines. We find them in uh, meat and fish uh, via bacterial uh, action and the initial states of, uh, of uh, spoilage. Uh, putrescine and cadaverine are two vasoactive amines. In banana and avocado, uh, they present as dopamine and tyramine, tyramine being one of the ones that's uh, uh, quite high in some foods. The catecholamine neurotransmitters that are found uh, in foods are uh, norepinephrine, uh, dopamine, and serotonin, 
and the structures of these uh, vasoactive amines are at the bottom of this slide. Now we got a problem with vasoactive amines because uh, of their metabolism and uh, its effects on people uh, using certain types of medications. Uh, vasoactive amines are acted on by monoamine oxidase, MAO. This particular enzyme is widely distributed in the body. It's important in many biotransformations. Uh, it does impact uh, vasoactive amines by breaking them down. Uh, some individuals uh, that have clinical depression are treated with drugs called MAO inhibitors. You sometimes will see labels on foods that might have a high level of vasoactive amines. Uh, uh, warning individuals that are on these drugs that uh, there, um, uh, there is the presence of, of these particular chemicals. When you do have a co-exposure to vasopressive amines in food, uh, mostly tyramine, perhaps in cheese, uh, what you find is that the uh, MAO inhibitors actually uh, decrease the ability to biotransform and degrade these amines, and therefore they can have all of the physiological effects, uh, the increase in blood pressure, uh, and perhaps hyperventilation. In terms of uh, some of the uh, mechanisms of vasoactive amines, uh, when we study tyramine, we find that it has a little bit of an indirect action. It actually displaces normal catecholamines in uh, nerve granules. I show a picture here of a nerve granule. Uh, it can lead to chronic hypertension. Uh, this can be a severe presentation in the presence of MAO inhibitors. The vasoactive amines are found in food at relatively, in some foods at relatively high concentrations, especially cheese. Uh, tyramine, uh, two to 2,000 uh, parts per million. Avocado at 25 parts per million. Uh, we find serotonin in banana pulp uh, at 30 parts per million in avocado. And typical, typically most food sources are less than 10 uh, parts per million. And finally, in terms of some of the symptoms of vasoactive uh, amines, uh, hypertension can be mild to severe depending upon your particular uh, sensitivity. It can be linked uh, to migraine headaches. Uh, these food groups are some of the foods that are uh, uh, counseled to individuals uh, in terms of food avoidance uh, for response to migraine headaches. Uh, rarely uh, you can see the presentation of intracranial bleeding or death uh, with, with populations that are very sensitive to this class of compounds. Our next category of naturally occurring food toxicants is the pyrrolizidine alkaloids. If you recall, we've spoken of the PAs uh, several times in food toxicology this semester. This uh, presents itself as a problem in food animal forage because uh, grazing animals do have access to some of the plants, uh, the toxic plants that do contain PAs. But we do get them into human subpopulations through exposure via either a toxic incident. We'll talk about a case study uh, that happened in Tajikistan uh, about a decade ago or through cultural food types, uh, for instance, Native Americans or uh, other sort of subgroups uh, that actually eat specific foods, and those foods happen to be relatively high in pyrrolizidine alkaloids. 
These levels, uh, these uh, alkaloids can occur in some plants uh, at uh, significantly high levels, uh, about 5% uh, dry weight. There are over 100 different compounds. So there's a great diversity of chemical structure and uh, outcome. With the PAs, uh, that outcome is typically associated with hepatotoxicity in some form. Most human exposure does occur from herbal teas. We talked about comfrey tea that uh, is uh, uh, not commonly available nowadays, but you can still find it uh, being sold. Uh, this does have pyrolizidine alkaloids uh, in it. Uh, typically, though, what you find in terms of human toxicosis is crop or foodstuff contamination. We do have the ability to have low-level exposure in terms of the metabolites from uh, milk or meat, uh, but uh, tea is usually uh, the main vector in terms of uh, the fragrances uh, and tastes of some of the uh, plants uh, for common tea or medicinal herbal tea uh, applications. One of these is bush tea uh, use in Jamaica. There is a decreased use of comfrey. Uh, comfrey has astringent properties. Uh, it still is used uh, in wound dressing. One of the concerns we have over pyrolizidine alkaloids uh, is the carcinogenicity because of its reactivity with uh, liver uh, hepatocytes. One of the ways we see the uh, progression of liver uh, toxicity uh, is through uh, veno-occlusive disease with pyrolizidine alkaloids. This is uh, an occlusive lesion uh, that is produced in some of the hepatic veins, uh, occlusive lesions being lesions that block the flow. Uh, this particular obliterating endophlebitis actually uh, stops or inhibits flow of blood into the liver. Uh, it leads to uh, edema, narrowing and occlusion of the lumen or the pathways within the uh, liver atrophy and finally necrosis of liver cells from lack of uh, energy resources uh, due to uh, blocked blood flow. Portal hypertension in terms of the uh, uh, backup of blood flow from the portal vein is another diagnostic criteria for venoocclusive disease. In Tajikistan in 1992, there was an episode of uh, widespread pyrolizidine alkaloid toxicity. What happened in this particular case is there was a military blockade uh, that uh, uh, essentially ended with a, wait, a late uh, wheat harvest. Uh, the weeds were able to thrive in the wheat fields and the uh, wheat was contaminated with the seeds of heliotropium. Uh, this is a particular alkaloid, uh, pyrolizidine alkaloid generating species. The first cases of uh, illness occurred about six weeks after contaminated bread was consumed uh, by individuals. Uh, by the spring of 1993, there had been uh, more than 3,900 uh, cases of illness. Patients uh, in stage one of illness had abdominal pain, nausea, uh, vomiting. Uh, in, page, in stage two, uh, they had uh, enlarged livers. In stage three, they had ascites or an extended distended abdomen. Uh, and in stage, uh, in the final stage, there was hepatic encephalopathy, uh, essentially uh, uh, necrotizing uh, destruction of the tissue of the liver itself. The case fatality in this particular uh, incident, the ratio of fatalities was 1.3%, and the fatalities appeared to increase with age. 
Another class of compounds uh, that has direct impact on human disease, and this is one that uh, is uh, under study, are the anti-nutritional compounds known as protease inhibitors. Uh, these particular compounds are found in legumes and grains, potatoes, uh, eggplants, and onions. Their mode of action is to inhibit gastric enzymes that break down uh, various proteins such uh, as uh, trypsin or protease uh, type enzymes. Uh, the toxicity studies that we found have been in animals. We really don't know uh, how these uh, chemicals, uh, these protease inhibitors, uh, affect uh, humans. Uh, it's somewhat unclear. What we do find is that there is evidence for pancreatic hypertrophy, where we find a uh, hypersection of amino, hypersecretion of amino acid-rich proteins. Uh, this will lead to an amino acid uh, deficiency and some growth retardation uh, due to a dec declined uh, nutritional status. Uh, we see that this particular mode of action uh, and disease endpoint has a similar mechanism of latherism. There are other possible natural toxicants in the human diet, uh, too many to talk about uh, in a class like food toxicology. Uh, some of these in terms of uh, uh, ones that we uh, use quite often or are exposed to quite often, uh, caffeine, it's an alkaloid, various chemical compounds in terms of flavors, fragrances and spices, uh, licorice, nutmeg, sassafras, uh, licorice root is pictured here, um, and then the phytoalexins uh, that are found in uh, many uh, foods. Some of these uh, uh, natural toxicants at uh, specific doses and purities can actually be used uh, as medicinals. Uh, some of these have significant uh, desirable effects if you're a coffee drinker and you drink caffeine. We um, spoke before in the course about uh, the uh, fava bean alkaloids and the presentation of favism. Uh, these alkaloids are visine and convisine. Uh, they cause uh, favism in people that have an enzyme deficiency of uh, glucose 6-phosphate uh, dehydrogenase. Uh, this happens in some segments, uh, black Africans being one in terms of subpopulations. Uh, the presentation of uh, clinical signs include headaches, dizziness, nausea, uh, some yawning, uh, some vomiting, and uh, um, emesis, uh, abdominal pain, fever. There can be a, a, a subsidence of symptoms at this point in time. Uh, in some, uh, there'll be a presentation of acute hemolytic anemia, uh, where the actual red blood cells release uh, their hemoglobin, uh, and uh, all uh, kidney uh, uh, problems will, will follow. These uh, are the structures of the fava bean alkaloids, uh, convicine and visine. Lectins are another uh, category of uh, naturally occurring toxicants we've introduced before. These are proteins or glycoproteins uh, that can bind various types of carbohydrates. Uh, in the figure uh, at the bottom of this slide, you can see uh, a uh, coral tree lectin uh, that actually is binding uh, a complexation with uh, lactose in uh, this particular model. Uh, some of this binding capacity of lectins will cause cells to agglutinate or clump together. Uh, this is not, not a good thing in terms of human health. 
Um, there are uh, some blood type assays in terms of the hemagglutination uh, assays that uh, look at the clumpiness of uh, your blood, if you will. Um, what the mode of action in terms of lectins, it's not particularly well understood. It appears to decrease nutrient absorption from intestinal cells. Uh, there are over uh, 800 species of plants uh, that are lectin sources. Uh, we also get them from animal tissues. Uh, some of the sources include uh, black beans, soybeans, uh, lima beans, and kidney beans, the example I used uh, in a previous lecture. Some of the problems associated with lectins in terms of because they, they interrupt uh, nutritional transport, they can cause growth retardation from consumption of the raw product. Uh, some of these are very toxic. Uh, you probably have heard of ricin in these days of uh, terrorism and potential for chemical warfare. Ricin uh, is a lectin that comes from the castor bean. Uh, the RAT LD50 is uh, 0.05 milligrams per kilogram or 50 micrograms per kilogram. Uh, very, it's highly toxic uh, uh, phytochemical. Uh, it's responsible for growth retardation in cases where uh, one half to one percent uh, of the diet is black beans or soybeans. Uh, heating will destroy toxicity, and as we spoke before, uh, uncooked or undercooked uh, beans uh, can be a source of lectin toxicity. The mechanism of action for lectins, uh, it's uh, unknown. There seems to be a complex uh, mode of action in terms of uh, leading to disease. Uh, we do know that uh, there is a, uh, an action where it prevents nutrient uptake. There's apparent gut flora involvement, uh, and uh, there apparently is uh, an immune component, uh, perhaps in terms of uh, an allergic sort of response uh, and uh, uh, progression of disease. What this does is give us uh, finally a, um, uh, at least a look into the presentation of disease and then the follow through in terms of de determining the causation of that disease from a naturally occurring uh, toxicant. Uh, this gives us a little bit of a way to sort of understand the balance of naturally occurring chemicals in the human food chain uh, with uh, synthetic chemicals that do appear or contaminate uh, the human food chain. Uh, it gives us food for thought, uh, if you pardon uh, that uh, image, uh, in terms of the relative importance uh, that the media gives in terms of synthetic chemicals uh, in the human food chain versus some of these naturally occurring. Uh, it's hard to blame nature, whereas it's very easy to blame perhaps uh, uh, the manufacturers of synthetic chemicals and, and perhaps rightfully so uh, people or individuals or uh, companies that pollute the environment. Uh, next time we'll follow through uh, with more analyses in terms of uh, our uh, explorations and the sources, pathways, receptors, and controls of food toxicology. Until that time, thank you much. <laughs>